0: New parents can't wait to hear their child utter his first word. Will it be mama or will it be dada? While they love to hear that first word, one word they will soon tire of is why. Why is the sky blue? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to take a nap? Why this and why that? Some questions are easy to answer. Others are not. Why questions can wear us out. They can be frivolous and irritating coming from a child, but some why questions are important and need to be asked, so here's one. Why do you observe the holidays that you do? And here's another one. Why is this question important? Here on the second of a three-part series on the Biblical Holy Days, I'll answer those questions. I'll also explain one of the most misunderstood events found in the Bible. What happened on the day of Pentecost? What does it mean to speak in tongues? Exactly what is the gift of tongues? And should Christians be involved with this modern practice as seen in many professing Christian churches today? I'll answer these questions and more on today's program. You don't want to miss this, so stay tuned! Welcome to Tomorrow's World where today I'm giving the second of a three-part series on the Biblical Holy Days. I'll explain what happened on the Day of Pentecost and what it means, but first let's briefly review what has already been covered. In preparation for this series on the Holy Days found in Scripture, Mr. Richard Ames discussed the origins of holidays that many view as Christian. Why is it that professing Christians observe days when it is well known that they are steeped in pagan traditions. Why is a supposed most sacred Christian holiday named after a pagan fertility goddess? What do rabbits and eggs have to do with the resurrection of Christ? And how do you fit three days and three nights between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? After that, I began this three-part series on the biblical holy days. I pointed out that there are seven annual festivals that God gave ancient Israel. Jesus, His apostles, and the first century Church of God also kept these days. The first two festivals are Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, and they explain the first steps in God's plan of salvation for mankind. As explained, Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. And just as ancient Israel was spared by the blood of a lamb, so we are spared by the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed on the day of Passover. This is confirmed in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and verse 7, where it says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Many think that the death of Christ is all that we need to know, but the Bible says otherwise. After the Passover in Egypt, Israel was still in bondage. They had to leave Egypt to be free. And in the same way, we must respond to the sacrificial death of Christ by leaving Egypt a type of sin. We must repent, recognize sin, and put it out of our lives. And contrary to popular belief, salvation is not a single event, but a process, as evidenced in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter and in verse 18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God Note that with the New King James version as with numerous other versions says that we are being saved This indicates it takes time But how does this process take place Romans the 5th chapter Beginning in verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified, that is having our past sins forgiven by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled We shall be saved by his life. This again introduces the question How? How does the life of Christ save us? The answer is found in Galatians, the second chapter and verse 20. And I'll quote here from the older King James Version I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ's faith must be in us, but how can this be? And what does this have to do with Pentecost, which is the subject of today's program? How is it that we are saved by Christ's life? Do you realize, my friends, that these are critically important questions, and the answers are found in the biblical holy days? They're not found in the days commonly considered Christian. Why? If you want eternal life, you need to know, and I'll answer these questions in a moment, but first I want to tell you about one of the most important resources ever written by the late Dr. Roderick C. Meredith. Restoring original Christianity is a challenge to modern Christianity. Dr. Meredith documents how the Christianity of Christ, His apostles and their first century followers is very different from what has come down to us today as the religion of Jesus. I cannot emphasize enough how important this resource is for anyone truly interested in knowing God's will. Restoring Original Christianity is a must read, so order it today. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call. It's absolutely free of charge, and it can change your life. I'll be right back to show you the significance of what happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost.
1: Today's offer is yours absolutely free, no cost, no obligation. Call now, 1-800-236-0531. Call toll-free now or write to us at the address on your screen, or visit us online at tomorrowsworld.org. With this offer, you will also receive your free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine, full of timely articles and unique insights on today's important issues. Then be sure to go to tomorrowsworld.org forward slash digital. Have a digital subscription sent right to your email inbox faster than postal mail. Visit us online, now! We're looking
0: today at the second in our series on the Biblical Holy Days. It's the third when you count Mr. Richard Ames' program on the holidays typically thought of as Christian. We're introduced to the day of Pentecost when Israel came out of Egypt. This was when God made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. One definition of a covenant is an agreement between two parties. In this case, it was a marriage agreement. For God's part, He would be a husband to Israel and bless the nation with prosperity, good health, and peace. For Israel's part, they would be an obedient wife and keep His commands, especially the Ten Commandments. History shows that Israel failed to live up to their part. They were unfaithful toward God and he divorced her. The reason Israel failed is given in Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, and verse 29. Oh, that they had such an heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Yes, they wanted the blessings God offered but obedience was far from their hearts. It's no different today. People want God to take care of them, to bail them out of every problem, but they don't want to obey Him. When He tells us to keep one particular day as a day of rest and worship, we argue that any day is fine, but we choose the day that Roman Emperor Constantine commanded. When God gives us meaningful festivals and holy days to follow, We think pagan practices are more exciting. We think we know better than God. The solution to the heart problem is given in Ezekiel, the 11th chapter, and verse 19, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in My statutes and keep My judgments and do them, and they shall be My people, And I will be their God. Instead of laws written on stone, those same commandments will be written on tablets of teachable hearts. This is what the new covenant is about. The Apostle Paul quotes from the prophet Jeremiah and shows that the problem is not the law, but the heart of man. Hebrews, the eighth chapter, beginning in verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, here's the new covenant. Paul gives it in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The feast of Pentecost came 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And just as something spectacular occurred at Mount Sinai, so something spectacular happened in Jerusalem on that first Pentecost after the resurrection. The second chapter of Acts describes how God poured out His Spirit on the believers who were present and observing the day. God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel written on stone tablets. Now He would give the Holy Spirit to write those same laws in the mind and on the hearts. Acts 2 is greatly misunderstood, So let's take a careful look and see what it says, and just as important, what it does not say. Notice Acts 2 beginning in verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So, even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his followers obeyed the command to observe the day when God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai to ancient Israel. And isn't it interesting that something dramatic happened on that day? But millions have been led astray by a careless reading of this chapter. We'll take a look at this passage in a moment, but I want to remind you of today's free offer, Restoring Original Christianity. In it, Dr. Meredith writes, If Jesus of Nazareth were to return to earth today, would He recognize the religion that is using His name? that His professed followers believed doctrines totally contrary to what He taught, observing different days of worship, different customs, and most importantly, having a totally different concept of God and of His purpose than Jesus and the original apostles did. Jesus might wonder, why are they putting My name on all this stuff? Restoring original Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. If you have the courage to investigate this subject for yourself, call today. It's absolutely free of charge, and I'll be right back to explain what happened on the day God poured out the Holy Spirit.
1: Today's offer is yours absolutely free, no cost, no obligation. Visit us online at tomorrowsworld.org. Find us on Facebook, watch us on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter.
0: The tongues question is greatly misunderstood due to a misreading of what happened on the first Pentecost after the resurrection. There's no doubt from the scriptures that a gift of tongues was given to the fledgling New Testament church. But exactly what was this gift? Let's look at Acts, the second chapter, carefully. As we already saw before the break, Christ's followers were gathered together that day. Now let's look at verses two and three of Acts, the second chapter. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Note these important points of difference between what happened that day and what commonly happens in tongue-speaking churches today. Number one, it happened suddenly and unexpectedly. Two. There was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. 3. They were sitting, not working up the Spirit. And 4. There were seen divided tongues of fire. These points lead us in a very different direction than what many people think took place, but let's notice further important differences. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Note that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, but did they all speak in tongues? On the surface this appears to be the case, but let's read verse 7 before we jump to a conclusion that is not justified. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? The apostles were from Galilee, and the context of the chapter shows that it was the apostles who did the speaking and teaching. It was not Sister Susie who suddenly fell on the floor in some kind of ecstatic state, speaking what sounds to most people to be no more than pure gibberish. And this brings us to another significant difference. The languages spoken by the apostles were known languages. Here it is in verses 5 and 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And to further clarify, the author lists more than 15 ethnic and regional languages and dialects, beginning in verse 8, And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues or languages, the wonderful works of God. Clearly these were not unknown tongues, and it was nothing like what is seen among modern day religious services where tongues are present. Further, there is something equally important that is overlooked, the message of that day. This did not happen in a vacuum. The expression in the house where they were sitting is actually a reference to one of the porticos in the temple, and a large crowd took notice when they heard the sound of a mighty wind and when they saw manifestations of tongues of fire. They rushed to the scene, and each one heard the apostles speaking in their own native tongues. It seems that the miracle was as much in the hearing as in the speaking, as though one person spoke, but the multitude of people heard in their own different languages. Many believe that speaking in tongues, or ecstatic tongues, is proof of having the Holy Spirit. But is it? There is no doubt that some people in the early church did speak in tongues, that is, known languages, upon receiving the Holy Spirit. But as we have seen, speaking in tongues is very different from what is practiced today. Further, there is not a single sentence in the Bible saying that tongue speaking is required for salvation. So how does one know that he has the Holy Spirit? The message given by the Apostle Peter on that day was one of repentance. When his audience understood their complicity in killing the Messiah, they asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the response was unambiguous. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To repent means to turn around and go another direction. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not a matter of working it up, but of repenting and obeying God. And as this verse that we just read explains, baptism is to follow repentance. We must turn away from an ungodly life to a life of obeying God's law. Read it for yourself in Acts, the fifth chapter, and verse 32 and we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Yes, contrary to what you may have been told, obedience is required. A second apostle, in this case John, confirms this in easy to understand language. 1 John 2, and verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know Him, If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The true meaning of Pentecost and the very plan of God has been greatly misunderstood. But our booklet, Restoring Original Christianity, can help you cut through the fog of today's confused Christianity. So pick up the phone and call today, it can change your life. And I'll be back in a moment to give you one more amazing truth revealed by the day of Pentecost, a truth I doubt you've heard before. So don't go away.
1: Today's offer is yours absolutely free, no cost, no obligation. Call now, 1-800-236-0531. Call toll free now, or write to us at the address on your screen, or visit us online at tomorrowsworld.org. With this offer, you will also receive your free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine, full of timely articles and unique insights on today's important issues. Then be sure to go to tomorrowsworld.org forward slash digital. Have a digital subscription sent right to your email inbox faster than postal mail. Visit us online now.
0: I told you before the break that I would give you one more amazing truth revealed by the day of Pentecost. While we call it Pentecost in the New Testament, this day went by two other names, and it has a third word closely associated with it. Hidden in these designations is a truth almost no one understands. It was called the Feast of Weeks because one must count seven weeks and a day from when a sheaf of grain was offered. Israel was instructed to offer a bundle of grain during the Days of Unleavened Bread following the weekly Sabbath. The spring harvest could begin only after this first of the first fruits harvest was offered to be accepted by God. Now, recall an event after Jesus was resurrected. Few take notice of this critically important scriptural detail. It's seen right after Jesus reveals himself to Mary, John the 20th chapter and verse 17, as recorded in the King James Version. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Just as a first fruit grain sheaf had to be offered and accepted by God before the physical harvest was to begin, so Jesus, the first of the first fruit harvest, had to be presented to God for acceptance prior to the spiritual harvest to begin. Notice how Paul instructs the Corinthians regarding this. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at His coming. Notice that there is an order of resurrections. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at His coming. Pentecost is called the Feast of Harvest and is associated with first fruits. Here it is in Exodus, the 23rd chapter, and verses 15 and 16. You shall keep the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. As we have seen, the wave sheaf offering represents Christ. This Feast of Harvest comes 50 days later and represents those of us who are Christ at His coming. This is why we are referred to as firstfruits in numerous New Testament scriptures. My dear friends, do you understand the significance of this? There is a firstfruits harvest. It's represented by a small agricultural harvest in Israel. A much greater harvest comes later in the year. Spiritually speaking, not everyone is part of this small harvest. Yet it's God's will that all people everywhere have an opportunity for salvation, and I'll give that exciting part of the story in the final program of our series on the Biblical Holy Days. The last four festivals give insight into God's amazing plan by which He gives everyone a chance for salvation. I'll give that to you next time, but before we finish, let's see how Acts 2nd chapter, verses 36 to 38, summarize the meaning of these first three biblical festivals. The Apostle Peter preached a very powerful message on that first day of Pentecost following the resurrection. In it, he convicted the Jews who heard his message that they were guilty of killing the long awaited Messiah. They were cut to the heart and asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now notice how at the conclusion of Peter's powerful sermon we find Passover, the recognition of Christ as the true Passover Lamb who shed His blood for us, unleavened bread, our repentant response followed by baptism, and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to write God's laws in the minds and hearts of His first fruits. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are seven annual festivals of God as outlined in both the Old and New Testaments. The next four have yet to be fulfilled and they reveal spectacular events to occur in the near future. I'll explain them next week in the last of this series. In the meantime, be sure to call for your free copy of our booklet, Restoring Original Christianity. Don't wait, do it before you forget! And be sure to come back every week when Richard Ames, Wallace Smith, guest presenter Rod McNair, and I will bring you more news of Tomorrow's World. Until then, may the peace and truth of Almighty God and Jesus Christ be with you.
1: To take advantage of today's free offer or view today's program now or anytime, go to TomorrowsWorld.org. Find us on Facebook, watch us on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter. The preceding program is produced by the Living Church of God.